This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, this is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. And before we get to this week's episode, I'd like to introduce you to one of the producers here at C-SPAN, my colleague, Sean. Thanks, Rachel. If you're a fan of Q&A, we think you'll also like our evening newsletter, Word for Word, which brings you a recap of the day's most important political and policy events delivered right to your inbox. Read about what happened on Capitol Hill and at the White House and watch video highlights featuring the day's newsmakers. Hear them word for word. Join our community of informed listeners and viewers. Head over to cspan.org connect and subscribe to Word for Word today. Thanks for listening and staying connected with Word for Word. Subscribe now at cspan.org connect. Thank you. Charles Scribner III, author of this book, Scribner's Five Generations in Publishing. Mr. Scribner, there are two towns in Nebraska, Scribner and Blair. What's their connection to your family's publishing history? Well, the connection is uh, Mr. John I. Blair, who was the father-in-law of the first Charles Scribner, my great-great-grandfather. And I think it's fair to say without him, who built the railroad and named two of the stops, one of them after his own family, Blair, and the other very nicely after his son-in-law's family, uh, Scribner. If it weren't for him, I don't think I'd be here today sitting and talking with you because uh, he kept the firm afloat during those difficult Civil War years. And as one historian who was the archivist down at the Princeton University Library did a very nice three-volume reference, illustrated history of the company, and he put it quite simply at the beginning. He said, if you're going to start a publishing company, it helps to have, at the time, uh, one of the richest men in America as your father-in-law. So um, my great-great-grandfather married the right girl, I think it's fair to say, and he had a very helpful and devoted father-in-law, whom he addressed in all his letters as father. His father died when he was quite young. And I think that John Blair of Blair, Nebraska, uh, he, uh, he sort of took the place. So it wasn't just a financial uh, boon, it was also a personal one. I might add that uh, John Blair 
probably is the only American in history to have built and donated a hundred churches throughout the country. Every railroad stop of his railroad lines, and he owned more railroad track than anyone in human history, um, and up to uh, two million acres of land in America uh, to build those railroad uh, uh, tracks and, and, and lines. Um, Every stop he believed should have a church. So he built a church at every, at Blair, Nebraska, at Scribner, Nebraska, and so forth. Well, why did your great-great-grandfather, Charles Scribner I, go into publishing in 1846? Why did he choose publishing? I think the short answer is poor health. Uh, he had originally started at NYU, New York University, and then transferred to Princeton, uh, they were a very devout Presbyterian family, so I think he felt right at home at Princeton in those days. He was class of 1840, and he had originally read and studied the law. He wanted to be a lawyer, uh, but uh, he suffered from some sort of poor health afterwards, went to Europe to recuperate, and when he came back was told that uh, the law was too stressful, too taxing a profession, he should find something a little less, um, a little less demanding on, on himself, and so he decided to start a publishing company instead. Were there enough American authors in 1846 to, to work with? Uh, there were. Uh, well, I mean, we can think of, you know, Nathaniel Hawthorne and Edgar Allan Poe. They were not Scribner authors. Uh, but uh, it is also fair to say that the main uh, business of American publishers in those days was to publish editions for American readers of English novelists, Thackeray, Trollope, uh, and the like, and the poets. And they could do so like pirates on the high seas because there was no such thing as an international copyright law. Uh, the son of the first Charles Scribner, my great-grandfather, the second Charles, he was very active in uh, getting Congress to pass an international copyright law to protect uh, his author's uh, royalties, and, and really to protect their copyrights in America. It was a free-for-all then, but the founding Scribner, he wanted to do something rather different. Uh, he did not set up a printing plant. He did not get into it as a bookseller primarily. He wanted to publish new works by new authors uh, and predominantly American authors. Later on, they would have many famous English authors like Rudyard Kipling, Robert Louis Stevenson, um, uh, who else? Well, the most famous of all, I think, in our history, at least the one I'm most proud of, is Winston Churchill. But that was many, many decades later, indeed a century later. Uh, no, he started, and his first book uh, was a religious uh, work called The Puritans and Their Principles. And you can imagine it was no bestseller, but he was very serious about his religious publishing. It was followed, by the way, uh, by another, uh, the, the clergyman who wrote it was their hometown clergyman. The Scribners originally came from Norwalk, Connecticut, and the author of The Puritans and Their Principles was the clergyman fr uh, from the Congregational Church in Norwalk. But um, the second, uh, uh, well, the author of the first bestseller, 
the second clergyman uh, that I mentioned was a, a man, the Reverend J.T. Headley, and he wrote a two-volume biography of Napoleon in around 19, uh, 19 um, I'm betraying my own life, uh, 1850, and it was a runaway bestseller uh, and went through many, many printings. Uh, how much historical accuracy there was? Well, don't know, but it was a, an immensely popular biography at a time when a lot of Americans, now think of this as a generation after Napoleon's death, Ameri many Americans were rather entranced by Napoleon, and uh, they had little busts of, of him in their offices. Uh, and so uh, there was an interest in him at the time. And you write in your book, Scribner's Five Generations in Publishing, of course, nothing does more for a fledgling publishing house than its first bestseller. I might not be writing this account today were it not for the big sale at the very beginning of our history of a two-volume work titled Napoleon and His Marshals by the Reverend J.T. Headley. By all accounts, it was far from being the model of historical accuracy, but then how many bestsellers are? More to the point, it satisfied a widespread interest among Americans in Napoleon a generation after his death. Do you know why Americans were so fascinated by Napoleon at that time? Well, um, I can only guess. I'm not an American historian, but uh, America is the land of self-made successes, is it not? And uh, as opposed to uh, inherited titles from the former mother country, Britain. And Napoleon has got to be one of the world's most spectacular self-made men. When you think of uh, coming from the little island of Elba and what he accomplished. Now, he met with a sad end, but uh, like so many uh, people and even people in finance, he stretched a bit too far in his case, Russia. But uh, he, was, he was not only an enormous success story, but think of the Napoleonic law code, uh, reforms to uh, European governments. I mean, he really was, uh, he was a, a, a great politician, a great self-made leader, and um, a great man of ideas, and I think that's what appealed uh, to American businessmen at the time. Charles Scribner, you talk about your great-great-grandfather's innovations, including subscription books, magazines, a dictionary series, the Encyclopedia Britannica. These were all pretty unique at that time, correct? Yeah, we, uh, he was the first. Uh, he was the first publisher to bring the Encyclopedia Britannica. Uh, to the United States. It was the ninth edition. It was such a success. It sold four times as many copies as sold in the mother country. And, um, and it was such a success that I think the Britannica business back in the UK said enough of this. If, if Scribner can sell all these sets, they, the advertising department uh, bragged that if they were all lined up end to end, volume, to, you know, each volume of the series, it would stretch from New York City to beyond Omaha, Nebraska. Well, that's an inspiring thought, isn't it? 
anyway, they took they took the business under their own umbrella, so to speak. And uh, from then on, Encyclopedia Britannica has been published by itself in the United States. But we, we at least we gave it the start. Now, you write in your book that nepotism was a family business. How many Charles Scribner's or how many Scribner's have been involved over the generations? Well, I was the the last to do it uh, uh, for uh, regular paychecks, and I'm the I'm the fifth in the line. Uh, no middle names were very unoriginal, very redundant. Charles Scribner, Charles Scribner, Charles Scribner it was quite difficult in the book to write about these different generations without making them sound like kings. I say that because now, uh, at last, we have a King Charles the Third, but. Um, we had a Charles II, not we. Well, yes, we in America. He was our king too. Uh, but uh, so usually I refer to them as my great grandfather or Scribner. It was it was a little awkward. But to answer your question, my son Charlie, who's a, a, an environmentalist, a, a, con, a conservationist in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, keeping the drinking water uh, for the city of Birmingham clean. Uh, by suing polluters, he, as a college student, uh, worked uh, summer jobs in the reference division of the company. So you could say, actually, uh, six Charles Scribners uh, uh, got to know the publishing company and actually contributed toward the books. The seventh is all of seven years old uh, as we speak now. So. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's too early to rule him in or out. When you look back at your ancestry, Mr. Scribner, who really moved the company forward in your view? Well, you've got, I guess the founder has always got to be given the, uh, the first place, right, uh, of, any, uh, of any institution. But I would say that the largely in as a as a function of of longevity as much as anything else uh, it was his son charles uh, the second charles scribner he took over the company at the ripe age of 25 because his elder brother who was named after the, their grandfather john blair scribner he took over at age 21 uh, uh, he didn't graduate from Princeton because his dad, the founder, died at age 50 of, of uh, typhoid fever in, uh, in Switzerland. He was on vacation to recuperate in Switzerland. So that left a 21-year-old. Well, he only ruled uh, the, the company for, for seven years. He literally died of overwork. He was, I think, 28 years old. Uh, you've read the book more recently than I wrote it, but I think it was he was 28 at the time he died. And his younger brother, Charles, uh, who did graduate from Princeton uh, and, and had gone to work for the company, all of a sudden at age 25, he found himself in charge. Uh, and uh, he, that was uh, to be a, a, a half century uh, 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 at the helm, and and he he was the one who really uh, launched so much. The uh, Scribner's Magazine, for example, in 1887, which had a 50-year run, uh, it it uh, it 
finally went out of business in 1939, but that's a pretty good run. And it launched a lot of writers, Edith Wharton, uh, Henry James, uh, Theodore Roosevelt was a close friend of, of the second Charles and a very, pro probably the most prolific uh, president in our history uh, in terms of, uh, of his book output. And he was a, a very, very uh, uh, active and, and, and productive Scribner author. Uh, he also was a bit of an egotist. My great-grandfather was very fond of him, and he used my great-grandfather as his sort of eyes and ears in the New York business community when he was president. They were very fond of each other, but um, at one point, in one of Roosevelt's books, uh, his publisher had to send out to the foundry. In those days, books were printed with, with uh, lead type. Uh, it was all typeset. And he, they had to send out for several hundred, maybe thousands, of cap, more capital letter I's because we didn't have enough for Roosevelt. My great-grandfather referred to it as the vertical pronoun, and, uh, and Roosevelt used it quite heavily. Uh, but um, we owe him a huge debt in an area we later really got into in a big way, uh, and that was children's books, because my great-grandfather wanted to turn down The Wind in the Willows, which came to him from England. And President Roosevelt said, absolutely not. It's going to be a classic. You must publish it. And we did. And that was followed by um, Peter Pan, which also had a good long run. And I think it's still, both books are still read today, aren't they? Well, we're going to, throughout this discussion, look at some of the Scribner authors throughout history. Here's a couple. Henry Adams, who wrote History of the United States in 1889, Edith Wharton. Her first book was The Decoration of Houses, which we'll talk about in just a second. There was a Harvard philosopher named George Santayana, who was a Scribner author. Robert Louis Stevenson, J.M. Barrie of Peter Pan fame, Rudyard Kipling, Henry James, and Theodore Roosevelt. But Edith Wharton did not gain fame from the decoration of houses. Is that correct? No, she didn't. But boy, she liked to live in fancy houses. She uh, she was she was a terribly successful and and wealthy author. But she always outspent her royalties, and finally, I'm afraid, was lured away from Scribner's because she was too much in our debt uh, of with advances, and she was lured away. Uh, to Appleton, uh, but but she wrote her really her early novels for Scribner. No, the dec the decoration of houses was co-authored with a man named Ogden Codman Jr. And uh, you're absolutely right. She had great taste. She wrote a book of Italian villas, for example. She uh, was an expert on European, French, and Italian gardens. But she's not pr primarily known for her decorating. She's known for her fiction. And books like The House of Mirth or The Custom of the Country, Ethan Frome, which I read as a student. Maybe you did too. It was assigned reading in school when I was a high school student. I want to ask you about George Santayana, the Harvard philosopher. If we read, he was quite well known in his day, correct? Very well known. I, I wish I could uh, know as much about him as I should, but I, I must say I, 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 I'm not terribly well versed in his books, but he was, uh, he was probably the most successful 
what do we call a crossover artist, dual career. He was a very prominent uh, philosophy professor at Harvard, but he also uh, wrote some best-selling fiction. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Now, Mr. Scribner, as a profession, you're an art historian, correct? Yes. What exactly did you do at Scribner's Publishing and why did you choose art as a profession? Well, I chose art history as my major at Princeton and then stayed on to do my PhD in it uh, for a very simple reason. I always thought coming from my background and the family influence that I was destined to be an English major. But uh, I was a very slow reader and uh, the amount of pages assigned by the Princeton English department uh, except for my favorite course, which was Shakespeare. That wasn't, that wasn't so bad. You know, plays have to be rather concise because they, they have to be performed within three hours or so. Uh, but most of the uh, English classes had huge reading lists. And I was interested in history via Kenneth Clark's wonderful series on PBS, my, so I guess, sophomore year, or anyways, the beginning of Princeton. Uh, and and it was called Civilization. And I took a course in medieval art, early Christian and medieval art, and I was hooked. And I thought, this is the way I want to learn history, through the images. I'd rather, I'd rather study the images, the architecture, the paintings, the sculpture, the manuscript illuminations, and leave the long reading assignments to others. So I became, I was really, I wasn't an artsy type. I'm not an artist myself, but I thought the um, uh, art as a mirror of history. And I really got that through Kenneth Clark's civilization. That's the way I wanted to, to study history. And uh, I loved every minute of it. And in fact, the book I wrote just before this one was kind of a distillation of 50 years of study in that it was called Sacred Muse, a preface to Christian art and music. Very short. Uh, it's, um, it can be read in 40 minutes. Why is it so short with such a broad subject? Because I was in Florida for vacation for two months with my wife and uh, I didn't have a project and I only had my iPhone. And if you want to guarantee that a book will be short, like The Old Man in the Sea, write it on your iPhone, digit by digit. And you've written books on Bernini and Paul Rubens and some others, including The Triumph of the Eucharist. Religion plays a theme throughout your history, doesn't it? 
Well, it does. And you know, and it's a theme throughout Scribner's history. As I mentioned, it started as a religious publishing house, but it didn't, uh, it didn't give it up. In the 20th century, it really broadened. Uh, well, in the 19th century, the greatest reference project was a massive, I can't remember how many volumes. Was it 20, 25, 30? Huge. It was uh, uh, Lange's, uh, uh, what was it, Biblical Commentary. It was by a German Protestant theologian, and it was a multi-volume commentary on the Bible that Scribner's, in partnership with a Scottish firm, TNT Clark, published, and it took decades. Uh, I can't imagine such a project being done today when publishing houses are owned by public corporations. Uh, the shareholders wouldn't have the patience uh, or endurance to wait that long to see a profit. But that was one advantage of being a family company back then. Uh, one, could, uh, one could take on very long projects. But in the 20th century, uh, we published uh, the great uh, uh, German theologians Paul Tillich, uh, Bultmann, the, I suppose the most famous to our audience here would be uh, the, um, the theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, who is still widely read today and wrote a great deal about politics and religion. Uh, the great Jewish uh, mystical theologian Martin Buber, we published his I and Thou, among other books. Uh, the Catholic uh, theologians Jacques Maritain, uh, Etienne Gilson, even Fulton J. Sheehan, a couple of books by him, Bishop Sheehan, who's up for canonization. I mean, we may be the only publisher who has an author who's been considered for sainthood, and so forth. I don't want to. I don't want to be listing lists. Now, Mr. Scribner, you do have a pretty strong Episcopalian Presbyterian background, but you write that Catholicism is your chosen faith. Well, I've, I was raised uh, in the Episcopal Church and at Princeton became a Roman Catholic, and I think that probably fed into my love of art history because my specialty was the Renaissance and Baroque. And I did my, my first, my dissertation was called The Triumph of the Eucharist, which was a great uh, church commission by Rubens for uh, the largest tapestry commission in history. And uh, I followed that with Bernini, who really transformed Rome under his bosses, several popes. Uh, and this is the Rome we see today. And so I think that the, the, actually those two uh, went hand in hand. Uh, the, the Catholicism and the specialty in these Baroque artists. But having said that, I still remain very close to my uh, family church, St. Bartholomew's, my Episcopal roots. Uh, I am born a Gemini, and uh, they're, they're really branches of the same religion. And my wife is Episcopalian, and my son, who's in Birmingham, is a devout Episcopalian, and my younger son, who's in the army as a captain, he just got married this past summer in the Georgetown Catholic Chapel. So I, I think we, uh, we, we, we like to think that we bridge uh, those two branches. Again, from your book, Scribner's Five Generations in Publishing, from the chapter entitled Great Scott, there, ah. is, there is something magical about Fitzgerald, you write. Much has been written and dramatized about the Jazz Age personas of Scott and Zelda, 
but the real magic lies embedded in the prose and reveals itself in his amazing range and versatility. He is my literary candidate to stand beside the demigods Bernini, Rubens, and Mozart as artists of divine transfiguration. That's a pretty strong statement. Well, it is, but it, uh, I think Fitzgerald was at heart a poet. He wrote prose, but uh, he wrote a little bit of poetry when he was at Princeton, and some of it's in his first novel, This Side of Paradise. But I think his love of language, of imagery, uh, you know, the, uh, think of all the different light imagery in The Great Gatsby, uh, from the green light at Daisy's Dock to the, the carnival lights at Coney Island to the parties of Gatsby. He describes Gatsby's house lit up like a Christmas tree. There, but it, it goes back further than that for me personally, because even though I was the fifth Scribner, well, not the fifth Scribner, but the fifth generation to go to Princeton. Uh, and I'd known it since my childhood, being taken there to football games by my dad. Uh, I was not at home my, my freshman year, my first term. It felt big and impersonal. And these were the Vietnam War years, so there was a lot going on. Uh, but I didn't feel at home, and I went home a lot for weekends and even during the middle of the week uh, for dinner, I'd go home. And uh, it wasn't until I read This Side of Paradise by Fitzgerald that he literally transfigured my vision of, of the Princeton campus. He gave it, I think I said, a, a soul, a spirit. He gave it a, a magic. And it's stuck with me ever since. I couldn't leave. I stayed on for two more degrees. So never underestimate the power of prose or the power of a novelist, the power of fiction. Uh, I think Oscar Wilde got it right. Life imitates art, not the other way around. How did Scribner get connected with Fitzgerald? Thanks to a very patient, determined, and, and brilliant. A young editor from Harvard, I might stress, not all came from Princeton, uh, Maxwell Perkins. And I think one of my, I think the next chapter is called Editor Maximus because he was probably the most famous uh, editor of the 20th century, Maxwell Perkins. And he got Fitzgerald's manuscript, it was sent to him, uh, on the recommendation of another author, Shane Leslie. And Fitzgerald at the time was in the army. He had left Princeton before graduation. Uh, actually, he flunked out. He, did, he flunked chemistry. But uh, it was called The Romantic Egotist. And my great-grandfather turned it down. And Perkins kept working with Fitzgerald, and Fitzgerald kept rewriting it. Fitzgerald was a great, great rewriter. He, he was like a sculptor. He would, like Bernini, he would polish, polish, polish until it finally had the form that, uh, that satisfied him. The second time it was turned down, but Perkins didn't give up and neither did Fitzgerald. And the third time it was submitted, he gave it a very poetic title, This Side of Paradise, which comes from a poem by 
that uh, beloved British poet, the a casualty of World War I, Rupert Brooke. And uh, that was uh, published to great acclaim and really launched Fitzgerald's fame as a very young writer. Was The Great Gatsby a success immediately? You write in your book that more copies are sold today every two weeks than the cumulative total in Fitzgerald's lifetime. That's a yes. pretty astounding figure. Yes, it's tragic. Uh, it got some very good reviews. There were writers who, who saw its genius, among them uh, the Scribner author Marjorie Kennan Rawlings. Uh, uh, I think Hemingway admired it. Uh, also, Hemingway came to Scribner's thanks to Fitzgerald. So if Fitzgerald did nothing else but serve as a scout in Paris and, and bring us Ernest Hemingway, he would have uh, earned his fame in the pantheon of literature. But uh, it got some good reviews. It got some poor reviews, too. It sold okay, but it wasn't a great bestseller. Uh, the, the irony is that it was adapted to a play for Broadway by Owen Davis the next year and was a hit on Broadway. And then think about it, it was made into a silent film which has been lost except for a small clip you can see on YouTube uh, from the, the little remnant of the silent film. But then think, fast forward, post-World War II, no fewer than four major Hollywood films have been made of The Great Gatsby. And it's, it, when Fitzgerald died, very young, he was 43 in 1940, uh, he, uh, there were, he left behind in our warehouse on 43rd Street copies of the uh, 1925 printing of The Great Gatsby. It never was out of print. The truth is even sadder. They were, the copies were there in our warehouse. Nobody was ordering them. It was World War II and the program of sending paperbacks for free to our GIs. And in this case, the Great Gatsby was sent to the GIs at the end of the war when they were occupying Germany. And the, uh, the great Fitzgerald scholar, the late Matthew Brookley, estimated that these copies changed hands because you know, a soldier would read it and then it would pass on to a, another soldier. It probably got a million new readers of, a, of the next generation, the World War II generation, not Fitzgerald's generation. And um, after the war, that's when its apotheosis took off and it gained sales and it began to be uh, assigned reading in school as it was when I was in high school. It was an assigned novel. It would then went into paperback. There were, the, as I mentioned, there were the, the movie came out. I think it was 1949. It starred Alan Ladd as Gatsby, and it was just going gangbusters. Uh, by the time I came into Scribner's, the year after the Robert Redford Mia Farrow film was made in 1974, uh, that's probably up until the latest one with Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, was was uh, was the most famous uh, designed by Ralph Lauren. It really gave him his start too. Uh, we were selling mainly to the schools, uh, uh, to students, to read in class about a quarter of a million copies a year. And then, of course, there were many sold abroad in translation and 
and uh, English language editions abroad. Uh, by the time I left Scribner's, uh, 30 years later, the sale had doubled. I think it sells now in, in America alone half a million copies a year. Amazing. Mr. Scribner, does Scribner's through whatever machinations still get revenues from the sale of Fitzgerald books? Yes, to the, to the, fa to the family members. Of course, the, the member I worked with and my father even more closely was his only child, his daughter, Scotty, who was an absolute delight and a very talented person herself. Uh, she wrote some introductions to her father's book and, and she, she inherited some of his talent and, and Zelda, for all her, her craziness, alas, was, was very gifted as, a, as, a, as an artist uh, with sort of surrealist pictures. And she wrote too. I think Fitzgerald helped her a bit. But uh, in the 90s, uh, uh, Professor Brookley, at uh, my commission, uh, put together the collected writings of Zelda Fitzgerald. And they're not bad. They're not Mozart. Uh, they're more Salieri than Mozart, but they're good. And uh, the, the uh, grandchildren now are the generation that are alive and, and still getting some royalties. But alas, these books, and the main one, which made the bulk of the royalties, is now in the public domain, which means that if you look on Amazon, there are probably dozens of editions, uh, some quite corrupt, others more faithful, of The Great Gatsby. And sadly, on those, the heirs get nothing. The book now, quite literally, belongs to the public. And just, why, why is that? Why did that just recently happen? Well, it would have happened a good deal earlier. It would have happened, uh, the original copyright law when I came to work at the ripe age of 24 in 1975, it, the length of copyright was 56 years after publication, so help me. Uh, 56 years. 25 and 56, uh, correct? Uh, so it would have been 1925 and 56 would be... 81. Oh, the year my son Charlie was born. Yes, that would have been a happy year and a sad year. Uh, sad for us because we would have lost all the publishing profits. Everybody would have been publishing The Great Gatsby. Uh, happy because of the birth of our son. But uh, Congress, and we can thank Mickey Mouse for this, Congress, at the, with the uh, strong lobbying of the Disney Company, extended the copyright law for another 19 years, I think. And then, now my math is bad, but uh, then again with the lobbying of Disney that did not want to see Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck go into the public domain, uh, it was extended, I think, another 10. Anyway. It went into the public domain just shy of its 100th birthday. I think it was in 19, uh, 19 uh, my, my century. No, 2021 or 2022, thereabouts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Some more Scribner authors that we want to note. Benito Mussolini, Winston Churchill. Leon Trotsky, Thomas Wolfe, Marjorie Rawlings of the Yearling fame, a woman named Marcia Davenport, Charles Lindbergh, who, according to one of the earlier Scribners, said he was the fussiest author he ever had to deal with, James Jones, who wrote From Here to Eternity, and Clarence Darrow. I want to ask you about Marcia Davenport. Oh, well, thank you. I because wish... she was a pretty well-known novelist in her day, wasn't she? I think I have probably written more about Marcia Davenport in this book because I was immensely fond of her and really wanted to get another novel out of her. I never did. But I was very fond of her in her later years. I really, I met her when I was a teenager, uh, briefly, but got to know her... I think the year she turned 75, and I was out, I was traveling back and forth to the West Coast that year, and uh, she was living in Carmel, uh, California. And I had read uh, during that time, because I was very close to a, a Metropolitan Opera singer I'd met, great soprano Mary Costa, I'd met the year before, and Mary had mentioned to me that she'd been approached uh, earlier in life to star in a movie of a book called of Lena Geyer. And she said, I think, uh, Charlie, your, your family published it. It was by Mount Marsha Davenport. Well, indeed we had, and I hadn't read it. And so I immediately read it because I was a huge opera fan. And uh, it, uh, it absolutely hooked me. It, I think to this day, it is the finest book written about the world of opera. Uh, it's written as a novel, but it draws very heavily from her own experience of being the daughter of a very famous, in her day, in Caruso's day, uh, Metropolitan Opera singer Alma Gluck, who was one of the first artists to sell uh, a million copies of a record. and. Uh, so that got me interested in, in Marcia Davenport. And then I just decided, okay, I'm going to read all her novels. I read all her novels and her autobiography, Too Strong for Fantasy. And I think uh, one of the surprises in writing a book is you really don't know. You know, novelists say they really don't know what's going to happen to a character until they start writing. I thought I knew what I'd be writing about uh, in this history because I had lived a lot of it and I'd heard most of it through my father. But I did not foresee that I would be giving as much attention to Marcia Davenport as to, say, Edith Wharton or Ernest Hemingway. And um, I, she deserved it. I'm, I'm so glad. Uh, uh, it really pleases me when friends now say, oh, I'm, I've ordered a copy of her novel, East Side, West Side, or The Valley of Decision from Amazon. Uh, that really pleases me because if, if some people discover uh, forgotten authors through this book, well, I think that's, that's a nice added dividend, don't you? Mussolini and Churchill, how did those two 
become Scribner authors? Well, I'm happy to say Churchill was the far more important author. In fact, he was, of the two, the only author who actually wrote his books. The Mussolini book was a bit of a fraud. Uh, it was published in the late 20s, uh, uh, before all the horrors of the Nazis and, and so forth, but uh, leading up to World War II. But uh, uh, American businessmen were sort of fascinated with him. I mean, what was the old saying? He got the trains running on time. And our ambassador to Rome interviewed him, and he was really the writer of the book. Uh, Mussolini gave a lot of interviews. It was based on his stories, but he didn't write it. Churchill actually, he was the author of his own books and probably one of the finest authors who ever lived uh, in terms of, of, of historical writing. Uh, the, uh, I did discover in writing this book that our ambassador, his name was Child, and he wrote the, the foreword to the book. And my father had told me when I found this book on the shelf in the library, I think dad would have been happier if I had not discovered it. He was not immensely proud of that book in our history. But, you know, we did publish three years later the famous communist Bolshevik uh, Leon Trotsky. So, you know, we, we were balanced, I guess you could say. Uh, but I did find out that, that the ghostwriter was a young Italian, um, Luigi Barzini Jr., who after the war came to America and uh, wrote a best-selling book in the mid-60s that really explained Italian culture to Americans. It was called The Italians by Barzini. So think of it. Uh, back in the 1920s, he was ghostwriting Mussolini's autobiography. Uh, uh, the, the amusing thing about the biography that struck me when I took it off the shelf, it still had its jacket. And on the jacket was script, presumably in Mussolini's own hand. And it said, there is no other autobiography by me, Benito Mussolini. And I thought, he doth protest too much. And we should mention that uh, you write that uh, Scribner advances kept Winston Churchill solid financially during his years in the desert or in the wilderness. Yes, but when he was out of office, uh, that's true. He really earned his, his livelihood and it was an expensive livelihood. I think I mentioned that the, uh, the multi-volume uh, set of uh, the history of World War I called The World Crisis. Uh, with the advance he got on that, at the he, he bought a Rolls Royce. And it, it, and, and it helped with the expenses of his country house, Chartwell. Uh, we didn't earn out those advances. I mean, in today's dollars, we, we advanced Churchill millions of dollars over the years. Uh, for the, world, the history of World War I did well. And the book I am most uh, enthralled with is his early memoir called My Early Life, A Roving Commission, which again uh, was assigned reading my ninth grade year, third form year at St. Paul's School. And it's one of the most wonderful uh, no uh, novels, no, I hope not a novel, but a memoir of, of a, an early childhood, growing up 
born indeed in Blenheim Palace. His grandfather was the Duke of Marlborough. And uh, uh, no, he didn't earn out those advances. So after the war, uh, he sought fresh money. And for his great, huge successes, the history of World War II and um, uh, the uh, history of the English-speaking peoples, he, he went to another publisher. But I took solace in the fact that a, a book that would hardly be, have been a bestseller, it was a multi-volume biography of his ancestor, the first Duke of Marlborough, uh, John Churchill, who won the Battle of Blenheim, after which uh, he, he was given a palace, Blenheim Palace, and built it, uh, and Churchill was born there. Uh, that I looked back and I thought, well, we didn't earn our advances back, but they were good books, they were well-reviewed, and most important, they kept this great man, I would argue perhaps the greatest man of the 20th century. It kept him afloat uh, so that he was ready to assume the prime ministership and become perhaps the greatest war leader uh, uh, who ever lived. Uh, I think I said winning, I may have exaggerated, but I do feel on some level it's true to say that Churchill helped will win a war, world war with words. It was his eloquence that really kept the British uh, fighting and not giving up. And um, not bad to have him in the, in the history of, of, of our authors. Well, this is not Charles Scribner's first time on C-SPAN. He appeared in 1999 on a panel. We want to show you a little bit of video. I do recall vividly, however, the day he died. It was, it was uh, coming over on the transistor radio. I remember it as vividly as the announcement of President Kennedy being shot a couple of years later. I mean, that's how important a role Hemingway played in our family. And indeed, the publishing company. I mean, we're a little over 150 years old. Half of that history has been publishing without stop the works of Ernest Hemingway. They have never gone out of print in 75 years. Uh, and without question, in that 150 years, he is the most important writer that Scribner's ever published. And I'm including Robert Louis Stevenson and Henry James and Edith Wharton and Scott Fitzgerald. I mean, there were some others, too. But he is, and I think without question, the, the towering figure of the 20th century. I mean, he is the Picasso of American literature. July 2nd, 1961, where were you? July 2nd, 1961, I was out in Far Hills, New Jersey, playing ball with my two younger brothers. And I remember over the transistor radio, uh, the, the announcement, sudden announcement, that Ernest Hemingway um, had shot himself and was dead. And it was just like uh, hearing two years later in 1963, a similar announcement over the loudspeaker in our schoolroom in New York at Buckley School. Uh, it, Hemingway was such a towering name in our family. And uh, my father was his last publisher and was close to him. Not a best friend like his, his own father, my grandfather had been. They really were best friends. But uh, my father was a generation younger, but he, he was his publisher during those difficult years of the 1950s. Uh, when Hemingway's health was beginning to fail, and the poor man uh, survived two near-fatal plane crashes in Africa. So there were, he had a lot of challenges. Uh, 
But uh, I tell the story, and again, uh, uh, my father used to say to me, writing uh, is, is a heuristic experience. And what he meant by that rather uh, a Greek word was uh, you make discoveries that you are not aware of when you actually set them down on a page in writing. And the discovery that I made was a conclusion that had never been mentioned by my dad. He had told the story that toward the end of Hemingway's life, Hemingway entrusted his handwritten last will to him. It was in a valise. He gave it to my father. He was then renting an apartment. Hemingway was renting an apartment, oh, half a mile uh, up Fifth Avenue from Scribner's. And uh, he said, now put it, lock it in your office safe. Don't lose it. It contains my will. And then the next day, he appeared unannounced at the office, pretending to look up something in the valise. And uh, of my dad quite immediately realized Hemingway just wanted to make sure dad hadn't lost it. I suspect Hemingway remembered bitterly the lost suitcase in the Paris train station that had all his manuscripts that his first wife Hadley had lost. Anyway, no, dad hadn't lost it. It was in the safe. And then uh, within a couple of years, Hemingway was, uh, was dead. And my dad called up his lawyer, who'd been serving as his agent, a man named Alfred Rice, and said, uh, Alfred, I've got uh, Ernest Hemingway's will here in the office, his last will. And it was news to Hemingway's lawyer. He didn't know about it. He said, oh, my God, I don't, never heard about that. Uh, and dad said, yes, it's here. I've got it in my hand. And I, maybe you ought to come over. And Rice said, yes, I'll be over right away. Uh, we may have to destroy it. Well, you can imagine the, the bells that went off in my dad's inner ears. And he thought, I'm not going to be party to a felony. Uh, you can't destroy a will. So he called up his lawyer, the publishing lawyer, the famous Horace Mangies of Wild Gotch Old Mangies. He arrived. The two lawyers arrived. They each held a corner of the will, read the will. It all turned out fine. Rice uh, heaved a sigh of relief and said he's left everything to Mary, his widow. Uh, so Rice would remain in charge now as Mary's lawyer, and everything was, was fine. But uh, that was a dramatic story my dad had told me, and I knew the story. What had not occurred to me until I put it down at the end of a chapter was the conclusion that dad never mentioned. I don't think he mentioned to anyone. Perhaps he didn't give it much thought himself. He was a very modest man despite all his, his great uh, intellectual and scholarly talents. Uh, and the, the conclusion was this. Hemingway had entrusted his will, a handwritten will, not to his own lawyer, who negotiated all his own contracts, took care of all his legal matters, not to a close member of the family. Who did he entrust it to? He entrusted it to his young publisher who was just about uh, 40 years old at the time. And I thought, wow, that speaks volumes about the relationship between Hemingway and the son of his best friend and publisher, the third Charles Scribner. And here's a little bit from Ernest Hemingway's letter to your father on the death of your grandfather. I won't try to write to you how much he meant to me as a friend and as a publisher. He was the best and closest friend that I had, 
and it seems impossible that I will never have another letter from him. It does not do any good to talk about it, and there is nothing to say that makes it any easier. Since he had to die, at least he has gotten it over with. So there is a little bit of humor in their relationship. Yeah, that's classic Hemingway, isn't it? Uh, Since he had to die, at least he's gotten over it. But then the letter goes on to say, and my dad at the time, I was an infant in Washington. My dad had been called back to duty as a cryptanalyst, breaking naval uh, foreign codes, enemy codes, during the Korean War, as he had during World War II, the Japanese code. And... uh, he had to commute one day a week uh, up back and forth to New York to the office because he was now in charge. And Hemingway got, went on in that letter in the most reassuring, really uh, affectionate and thoughtful way. Uh, it was the side of Hemingway that the caricatures don't, do not capture, the tough, macho uh, bully. Uh, no, he was extremely sensitive and and thoughtful, and he reassured uh, my dad. He said, you'll never have to worry about my loyalty. You never have to worry about my finances. You've got so much with the Navy and the House of Scribner and the estate to manage. Uh, don't, don't worry about me. And then at the end, he wrote a, a typical Hemingway postscript. He said, P.S., don't know your rank, so address this as a civilian, E.H., Classic Hemingway. Gribner authors Reinhold Niebuhr, Frank McCourt, Angela's Ashes, Don DeLillo, Salman Rushdie, Hillary Clinton, Anthony Doerr, All the Light We Cannot See, Stephen King, Jesmyn Ward is another. Who owns Scribner's now? Well, the, those, no, those names that you have just mentioned really belong to the current administration, post-family ownership. We can take no credit for those. Well, uh, did you begin with Reinhold Niebuhr? I did. But, but, the, but the modern ones, the current ones, right. Anthony Doerr and, uh, and Ward and Stephen King and so on, they belong to the current administration, which is headed by Nan Graham. And it's an imprint at Simon & Schuster, which has just been bought by um, uh, Henry Kravis's organization. Uh, ironically, Kravis... On beha- uh, together with the uh, administration of Macmillan, uh, with which my dad and I had uh, uh, orchestrated a very friendly uh, and, and um, desired merger of Scribner's into Macmillan to give it a solid foundation in the 80s, uh, it was bought by this pirate, Robert Maxwell. You've probably heard of him. Uh, he went overboard on his yacht, the Lady Galen. Uh, three years later. But uh, Henry Kravis's company and the, uh, the management of Macmillan, they, they lost out in that bidding. And now here we are. That was 1888. Uh, 18, please. I'm living in another century. 1988. And here we are, what, 35 years later? And Kravis's company buys not only Scribner's and the Macmillan titles, which are now part of Scribner, but all of Simon & Schuster, which is where Macmillan and Scribner ended up after Maxwell went into bankruptcy and his assets were sold. So, you know, you just got to hang in there. History has a way of coming around, doesn't it? So any family connection anymore to Scribner's? None. 
Charles Scribner, we have one minute left. You tell an interesting story about the artwork on the front of your book. Oh, you mean the, 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 the painting? Past the pastel of, of, of the, I would say the prime example of, of nepotism being a family business as well as publishing. For all for the, that location, the famous one that people today of a certain age will remember buying books in the Scribner bookstore opposite Rock Center on 48th and 5th. Uh, the building still stands. It's a New York landmark. Our name's still on it because the name was in brick on the side and landmarks won't let anything to be, be changed. So I call it my tombstone on fifth. Anyway, back in 1983, so exactly what, 40 years ago, I saw this artist, I'd met him before, very talented artist, Camille Kubik, a, a Czech artist. He used to do uh, the Christmas cards for uh, Bush 41 for the White House. Very talented artist of mainly of land of buildings and landscapes. And he had his easel set up right outside. It was my lunch break. And I went up and I saw him doing a pastel of the building. And I said, oh, I've got to buy this. I think he was just doing it for his own enjoyment and maybe on spec. And so I bought the pastel, kept it at home. And now years later, what, 40 years later, it's now on the cover of my book. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine uh, a, nicer, uh, a, a nicer image. And I say family uh, nepotism because the architect was my, my father's great uncle, my grandfather's uncle, Ernest Flagg, who is most famous perhaps today for designing the buildings at Annapolis. But he also did the Scribner buildings and he once did, it's torn down, the tallest building in the world for one shining moment, the Singer Sewing Machine Tower in Lower Manhattan. Um, that was torn down, I think, in, 19, in the late 1960s, 68 or 69. Once the tallest building in the world for a few moments. But uh, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that pastel because I was very fond of Camille Kubik. I later had him, commissioned him to do a beautiful pastel of my family, my childhood church, St. Bartholomew's, now a national landmark on Park Avenue, just a few blocks away, where my dad had been senior warden. Charles Scribner III is the author of this book, Scribner's Five Generations in Publishing. We appreciate your spending the last hour with us here on C-SPAN. Oh, thank you so much. It's been such a treat to to uh, indulge in all those happy memories with you. All Q&A programs are available on our website or as a podcast on our C-SPAN Now app.